morning. So I want to thank uh, Mark, Mark, for preaching last week. Uh, I think he did a great job in walking us through the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk. I don't don't know, how do we say that? We don't know, okay. Uh, One of the things I love most, most about Mark is his ability to rant. I mean, his ability to draw us in with a good illustration. For example, he said that Habakkuk was like a, a child reading his parents' diary and, and seeing that the parents keep asking, uh, what am I going to do with this child of mine? That gives me a picture of what's going on in Habakkuk. And so I thought about, I thought about that and I thought about our, our book for today. And I did my best to come up with an illustration that will give us a picture of, of what's going on, of what we're need to expect as we move forward into this book of Lamentations. So how many of you are familiar with the TV show, uh, Little House on the Prairie? Amen. All good people know the house. All right. It's based on a series of, series of books by Laura Ingalls Wilder. The books and the TV show tell the story of Laura and her family's uh, life on the prairie in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And if you've seen the show, nine seasons long, starting in 1974, you know that it's filled with a lot of tragedy, a lot of suffering. Crops fail because of floods and fire and tornadoes and locust infestations. Paw is Paw, the dad, the father, is often out of work and the family has no money for food. The bank forecloses on the farm, I don't know how many times. The barn burns down a couple times. The dog dies. Laura's sister Mary goes blind. A neighbor's wife and, and the child dies in a fire. The horse dies. Ma gives birth to a son, finally a son. Three daughters, finally a son, and he dies. The oxen are stolen. Another dog dies. Tragedy upon tragedy, major suffering. Now all this takes place over many years, nine seasons on TV. But imagine if all of this stuff and more happens in just one year. That gives us a little idea of what we're seeing in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is made up of of five chapters each chapter is a, is a poem. Each poem is an expression of grief, of lamenting over the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember the northern kingdom, it had fallen already uh, to the Assyrian Empire. Now Judah is fallen. Specifically, this is lamenting the fall of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is personified throughout the book as a, as a her, as a she, and, and, and she's devastated. These poems are probably written by the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Remember, he prophesied, uh, he prophesied, and then he witnessed, he lived during this time period, he witnessed the southern kingdom of Judah fall. We saw this a couple weeks ago. God, through the prophets, had warned his people to turn from their sin, to turn from their idolatry, to turn from their immorality, to repent and to turn back to God. But the people refused to repent over and over, chance after chance. And even though God was patient with them, in 586 B.C., his patience ran out. 
God raised up a pagan king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, to discipline his people. Nebuchadnezzar came in, his armies destroyed Jerusalem. He devastated both the land and the people. And the book of Lamentations vividly describes uh, this destruction and devastation. It laments the suffering of God's people. But it does more than that. It's not just a book on suffering. Lamentations is also a book of, of hope. In the middle of the grief and sorrow and suffering, we find hope. Exactly, actually in the middle, in chapter 3. So there's poem, destruction, destruction, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5. In the middle, there's hope. Uh, Probably the only verses most of us are familiar with in the book of Lamentations are in chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We sang about it. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in Him. Lamentations gives God's people hope in the midst of their suffering. And that's something we all need, right? As we experience suffering in this life, we need hope. We need hope in the Lord. We need to know that the Lord will help us through our suffering and that He will, in time, deliver us from our suffering. And so in the midst of these lamentations, we find hope. Hope in the Lord. And hope isn't, just so we understand, it's not uh, wishful thinking. When the Bible talks about hope, especially hope in the Lord, it's a, it's a future assurance of things to come. Assurance that God will be true to His character. That God will be true to His promises. But before we get to the hope, we need to back up. And we need to uh, begin by examining their suffering. Now I know this isn't the fun part. But God doesn't skip the suffering. It's part of our world, and it's part of His Word. Lamentations is is literally overflowing with the suffering of God's people. And we need to see both their suffering, and we need to see the reasons behind their suffering. We need to, in a sense, enter into their suffering. Because when when we see how they suffered, when we see why they suffered, and and then we, we see that there is still hope, we can be encouraged. We can be assured in the midst of our suffering that we can have hope as well. So let's take a look at the suffering that God's people endured following their defeat, their devastation by the Babylonian Empire, by this uh, Nebuchadnezzar guy. And the first thing I want to point out is that their suffering was severe. We've mentioned it, but let's see it. If you've read through Lamentations, you've seen it already. It's all over the book. Death, destruction, devastation, suffering. But in Lamentations chapter 4, we find probably the severest suffering possible. In verse 4, we read, The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. Have you ever been so thirsty that your your tongue sort of was sticking to the roof of your mouth? I can't can't say that I have. There's always water somewhere. And these are infants who are suffering. Verse 4 continues, "The, The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies in the streets. There's a contrast. They once feasted on delicacies. Now they they don't have any food. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash. They had wonderful, beautiful clothing. Now they're just covered in ash. 
Infants, children begging and dying of hunger and thirst. But there's no food, no water to give them. The aftermath of the Babylonian conquest devastated the land of Israel. The, 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 the Judah, the southern part. There was a great famine in the land. And in verse 10, it gets oh so much worse. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people, the daughter of my people, Jerusalem. Not vile, greedy women, but compassionate, merciful mothers are driven to boiling their own children for food. It would be like Ma Ingalls uh, boiling Laura to feed the rest of the family. That's disturbing, isn't it? These are some of the most disturbing images we have in the Bible. Thirsty, starving, infants, begging children, mothers boiling their children. It can't get much worse than that. Suffering beyond what most, if, if not all of us, will ever experience or even imagine. Now, I'm not downplaying our suffering the suffering that we experience. I, I know that some of you have and some are experiencing very difficult things in your life. Real physical, emotional suffering. But what I want us to see, what we will see, is that even in the most severe suffering, I don't think we can argue this is very severe suffering that these people are going through. Even in the most severe suffering, there's hope. Don't allow the severity of your suffering to crush your hope in the Lord. So first, their, their suffering was severe. And second, their suffering resulted from sin. Now that's not to say that all suffering is a result from our own personal sin. Sometimes we suffer for other reasons. Job, we, we talked about Job months ago. A righteous man suffered as a test of his faith. And often we suffer because we live in a, in a sinful, fallen world. We suffer as a result of the sins of others, the sin of Adam, the sin of humanity, all of our sin. That was really the case for these infants and children we read about in Judah. They suffered because of the sins of their people, of the people they were born into, of their, of their parents and their grandparents. But for most of the people in Jeremiah's day, their suffering was a direct result of their own sin. We see it again all over the book. One example Chapter 1, verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. Jerusalem, not the city, but the people of the city sinned big time. Therefore she, they, became filthy. That word filthy means unclean, removed, or exiled. After being given chance after chance, the people continued in their sins of idolatry and immorality. That's what we talked about two weeks ago when we looked at the prophet Jeremiah, his book, and therefore they became filthy. They were removed and exiled from their land. Because of their sin, they experienced suffering. And this is so, so important for us to see. Because we too, uh, no different, will experience suffering because of our own sin. If we continue to rebel against God, if we continue to hold on to the sin in our lives, we, you know, we keep it here, we hold on to it, we don't let it go, we will experience the discipline of the Lord. The scripture says the Lord disciplines those He loves. If we won't let go of it willingly, He will take it by force. His hands will reach out in some way and metaphorically smack us upside our heads. God has smacked me a number of times and it is not fun. 
He's gotten my attention. And we might think, well, if I'm suffering because of my own sin, then I deserve to suffer, and therefore I have no hope. And I would say, that, and I would say well, the Bible would say yes and no. Yes, they, we deserve to suffer. Lamentations 1.18 says about their suffering, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against His word, but, but hear all you peoples and, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. Speaking metaphorically, Jerusalem. The Lord is right to cause the suffering of His rebellious people. Their suffering is just. It is deserved. But no, that doesn't mean there is no hope. Even for those, even for you, even for me, who suffer because of our own sin, there's still hope in the Lord. So their suffering resulted from their sin, and their suffering was under God's sovereignty. This is sometimes hard for us to take or understand, but it's all over this book. Chapter 2, read it. The Lord did this. The Lord did that. The Lord caused the suffering. The Lord is responsible for the suffering. And Lamentations 3, chapter 37 through 39, again, speaking of the suffering, uh, it says, Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not for the mouth of the Most High that good and bad, good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? This is, they're being punished for the sins. Why are you complaining? You're being punished for your sins. Who has spoken this destruction of Jerusalem? Now, the natural answer, if you're just looking at it, might be uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one he brought, he's the emperor, he brought in the armies, he did the destruction, he's spoken, and it came to pass. But Nebuchadnezzar isn't even mentioned in this book. He's merely an instrument in the hands of the Lord. The Lord commanded their suffering. Both good and bad come from the Lord. God is in control when we experience joy, and He is in control when we experience suffering. Their suffering was under God's sovereignty. And, and our suffering, our suffering is under God's sovereignty as well. All things are under the sovereignty of the Lord. And we might think that we, we can't have hope because the one who's allowing, the one who's causing our suffering, uh, how can we have hope in the one who's in control and allowing us to suffer? But in reality, he's the only one we can have hope in. It's like, uh, sorry, I don't know if this is a good illustration. I'm trying to be too much like Mark today. Here we go. It's like if, if I were an MMA fighter. Don't laugh. Come on. That's funny. Who's one of the, I don't, I don't know, who's one of the top MMA fighters? Come on, somebody's got to know. Conor McGregor, is that, is, that, is that his name? Okay. I thought it was Colin Reese, I don't know, so just kidding, <laughs> joke. I could use, anyway, if I were in some cage fight, and I don't know how these work, but some cage fight with Conor McGregor, uh, no referee to help me, no bell, and he's just destroying me. One kick, one punch, everything, I'm just... I'm, I'm close to death. He's pinned me down, twisting my arm, causing me to suffer. My only hope is in Conor McGregor. My only hope is that he will stop. That he will relent. Because he's in total control. And as a, on a much grander scale, God is in complete control of our lives. He's in complete control of the world. He is our only hope in the midst of our suffering. He is our only hope 
for future relief. Therefore, therefore, getting angry at God in the midst of, our suffer, of your suffering may, not, may be natural, but it's not very beneficial. Crying out to God in repentance might be the best thing to do. So third, their suffering was under God's sovereignty. And fourth, their suffering caused uh, skepticism. I got all four S's in there. I'm very proud of me. Uh, this skepticism or doubt is seen at the end of the book. They start to ask some difficult questions in the midst of their suffering. In Lamentations chapter 5, verses 16 through 19, we read, The crown has fallen off our head. Woe to us. We have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. So what's he saying? The people, they're recounting their suffering. Because of their sin, they've lost their crown. They are no longer a nation. They've been defeated. They become sick and weary. Their land is desolate, being prowled by wild animals. But they recognize, even in the midst of that, even though they're suffering, Even though their nation is gone, they recognize that the Lord, their God, reigns forever. And they're they're going, what's up with this? The fact that they're they're suffering, God's people are suffering, and God reigns and causes doubt. They're not sure what's going on. Verse 20 and 22, they ask, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. There, are you, is it over? Why is this happening? Why us? Why me? Are we forsaken? Yes, the Lord reigns, and yes, the Lord is supreme, and yes, we believe in God, but we're suffering. So are we, are we in relationship with God anymore? Can we be forgiven? Can we be restored? Can we be renewed? And you know, these are uh, reasonable questions to ask. For for this people, everything is gone. There's no longer any Jerusalem, no prophets, no priests, no sacrifice, no temple, no king, no food, no water, no nothing. Are the covenants destroyed? It seems like everything God has promised to Abraham and to Moses and and to David is gone. Because of their sin, they forfeited their relationship with God, it seems. And their skepticism is, is relevant for us today. Because there are many of us who would say, we've made a, a mess of our lives. We've sinned and, and feel as though we can no longer have relationship with God. Maybe this is true for some of you. You can remember a time when you felt, felt close to the Lord. There was intimacy there. But because of your sin, you no longer feel the same way. You're distant from God. Maybe you're suffering for your own sin. You can remember a time when you felt close, but it's no more. And you're asking the same questions. As God's people in the book of Lamentations, am I forgotten? Am I forsaken? Can I be restored? Can I be forgiven? Really, the question you're asking is, is there, is there any hope for me? And you're not sure. But as we'll see, the answer is yes, there is hope. Not hope in your circumstances, not hope in your suffering, not hope in yourself or anything about you, 
but hope in the Lord. So let's look at this hope in the Lord. Dealt with the suffering. We've seen the suffering. Now let's engage in their hope. I want, I want us to look closely at the, at the hope they find in the midst of their suffering. Let's first look at the context again. Let's, let's get the context. Lamentations chapter 3. So we're going to get to verses 22 through 24 in just a second. Back up. Lamentations 3, 18 through 20. Jeremiah is recalling the suffering. My endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. My, my en- I, I can't take it anymore. I have no more hope. Remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood or poison and the gall. My, my soul continually remembers it and it's bowed down within me. He's at the end of his rope. He's been beaten down. No more endurance. Hope is gone. He cries out to the Lord, but there's no answer. He's experiencing great suffering. He's seeing the suffering of his people. And then in verse 21, we read, but this, this is so cool. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. In the midst of a hopeless state, he just said, I have no hope. In the midst of a hopeless state, he he remembers something. This comes to my mind, and and I have hope again. What does he remember? Now we come to the famous verses we read earlier. Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, my soul, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. What hope do we have in the midst of suffering? Hope in the Lord. Why? For beautiful, life-changing, mind-altering, hope-filled, true reasons. First, their hope is in God's steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. We've come across this phrase in our, in our study through the Old Testament before. Steadfast love. It's, it's all over the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's a supercharged, it's a supreme love. It, it includes the idea of it's long-lasting just within the word. Steadfast. It's enduring. It's, it's kindness. It's goodness. It's care. It's caring uh, for the individual more than you care for yourself. It's a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping love. I will keep my promises to those I love. Even though it, it looks like, at this point in history, the covenants are done. The covenants that we've been looking at over these past couple months, the covenant-keeping love of the Lord, but the covenant-keeping love of the Lord never ceases. Even when people sin and fail, God's love will never fail. And we need to understand, what we need to understand is that God's steadfast love is ununderstandable. I don't know if that makes sense, but I hope you got it. There is no explanation for it outside. There's, the explanation is God. Because, the reality, uh, because in reality, the objects of His love are a sinful, rebellious people. They were then and they are now. Why does the Lord love His people? Why does He love sinful, rebellious people? Israel, why does He love you and me? Clearly, clearly not because of who we are, not because of what we do, but because of who He is. His nature is love. God is love. That's the explanation. I don't understand it. 
that's it. We need to get this. God's love for us is not based on us. If it were, it could never be steadfast. It would definitely cease because who we are and what we do is not consistent. It is often sinful and often ugly, often unlovable. But God's love is not based on us. It's based on Him. On the one who's consistent and beautiful and therefore his love can be steadfast, never ceasing. The steadfast love of the Lord, it never, ever ceases. And his steadfast love shows up. It shows itself in mercy. Their hope is in God's eternal mercy. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. This word mercies in Hebrew provides us with a beautiful image. It comes from the root, the same word as a mother's womb. It pictures how a mother cherishes her unborn baby. I mean, I've never been a woman and I've never been pregnant, but even I as a father, when my wife was pregnant, I cherished. But can you imagine the cherishing of a mother, the one that's in her womb? The unborn child has done nothing, absolutely nothing, except kick and and cause morning sickness and all that. Uh, Nothing to deserve the love and compassion of the mother. But the mother feels love and compassion nonetheless. In the same way, God cherishes or has compassion on His people. Not because of anything uh, they've done, but because they are His people. He chose them. Don't know why. What mother would what, what what would a mother not do for her child? What would God not do for His people? His mercies, His compassion, never come to an end. They are, uh, Scripture says, new every morning. Even though on a daily basis we fail, uh, we sin, we fall, we can't exhaust the mercies of God. They are infinite. They are eternal. Each morning as we wake and begin a new day, the mercies of God, the compassion. So, so this word mercy is just the, the compassion, the act out, God's acting out of love in our life, His compassion and care for us. His compassion surrounds us and stands ready to forgive again and again and again. And that is such good news. We can never exhaust the mercies of God. Now, some of us try, we do our best to try, but we can never exhaust the mercies of God. 15th century Anglican theologian Richard Sibes said, there is far more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Think about that and thank God for that. His mercies never come to an end, therefore we can hope in Him. And that hope is sure. It's a sure hope. It's not a maybe hope. Maybe I'll experience God's love and mercy. It's sure because third, their hope was in God's great faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. We sang about it. The one consistent thing about us, about us humans, is that we are never consistent. Our faithfulness is questionable at best. We promise one thing and before the sun sets, we've broken that promise in one way or another. But not so with God. Every single promise God makes is sure and true and everlasting. Every single promise that He makes, every single promise that He has made, He will keep. Not one single uh, promise of God will fail, will go unanswered. 
So yes, we can trust in his steadfast love to never cease. We can believe in his mercies that will never come to an end because great is his faithfulness. And out of his love and mercy and faithfulness, we have hope in God's abundant provision. Verse 24 says, The Lord is my portion, my provision, says my soul, therefore I will hope. He's saying that the Lord has and will provide whatever he needs. He will go to the Lord to find love and mercy and faithfulness and forgiveness. He will take hold of the Lord. He will, as the imagery of Ruth is, he will uh, hide under the wing of the Lord. And that gives him hope. Remember in verse 18, the same writer said, My endurance is perished so that, that my hope, uh, so is my hope for the Lord, for the, from the Lord. My hope, I have no more hope. And now he says, therefore I will hope in him. Hope is restored. No hope in verse 18, abundant hope in verse 24. And the only thing that's changed, the only thing that's changed, it's not his circumstances, what's changed is his mind, his understanding, his thinking, his remembering who the Lord is. He's no longer dwelling on, he's no longer thinking about his suffering. Instead, he's meditating on the nature, the attributes of God. Now, I'm not advocating the the power of positive thinking. That's not what this is. This is the power of believing in the power of God. The power of believing in the promises of God. He's trusting in the love of God, which never ceases. He's trusting in the mercies of God, which are eternal, never-ending, new every morning. He's trusting in the great faithfulness of God. And he's trusting in the provision of God. This is not wishful thinking. This is trusting in the truth of who God is. And therefore, in the midst of his suffering, he's experiencing this hope in the Lord. It's, it's like there's suffering all around it, but I have in, in, internal hope, peace in the Lord. So in the midst of our suffering, when we feel far from God because of our own sin, when we're experiencing the discipline of the Lord, the solution is not uh, try to get your act together so that God will like you better. Not possible. The solution is to get your mind right about who God is and what He offers you. The answer is God Himself. The answer certainly involves some personal repentance. But more importantly, getting your mind right and returning to the Lord. Trusting the Lord to be who He is. This returning to the Lord in the midst of suffering is pictured uh, beautifully in the New Testament. Most of us know the story Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. You remember, he he walked out on his father, sin. He took his inheritance and squandered it away, sin. Oh, he lived uh, well for a while. Sin is pleasurable for a season. But eventually, he found himself in the midst of suffering. And it wasn't until he was sharing food with some pigs that he came to his senses, right? Right? The prodigal son remembered who his father was, and and that gave him at least a glimmer of hope in the midst of his suffering. And so not totally sure what he would find in desperation, with some skepticism, he returns home. But what what he found was far beyond what he could have ever hoped for. He would have been happy being a servant in his father's house. But upon his return, he found a father whose steadfast love had never ceased, whose mercies had not come to an end, 
whose faithfulness was great and whose provision continued on. He found a father who rejoiced in his return, celebrating his return to the family. And that's the kind of God, the kind of father we have. That's the kind of Lord that we can put our hope in. That's the Lord we can turn to in times of suffering. Even suffering, even suffering due to our own sin, we can turn to the Lord in repentance, knowing that His mercy, His love, His mercy, faithfulness, His provision, that He will rejoice at our returning, welcoming us back into relationship with Him because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And this hope that we just read, not just here, but in other places, but this hope is found in the Old Testament book of Lamentations. This hope is expressed by an Old Testament saint living at, in what has to be one of the worst, most difficult, devastating, destructive times in his people's history. And if he could have hope in this kind of uh, hopeless situation, how much more hope should we have as we come to the communion table, the Lord's Supper this morning? We're not in this situation. We're in a different situation, folks. As we remember and celebrate the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, that the Lord Jesus made for, uh, for each one of us, I want us this morning to experience the ho- our hope in Christ. Because it's in Jesus Christ that we find this ultimate fulfillment of Lamentations, chapter 3, 22-24. In Christ we experience, we can enter into true hope in the Lord in every area spoken of in these verses. First, in Christ we experience the steadfast love of the Lord. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Because of God's love. And through uh, the suffering, the sacrificial suffering death of Jesus Christ, those who trust in Him will be saved from eternal suffering. They will not perish but have eternal life. So our first hope in the steadfast love of the Lord uh, is revealed in Jesus Christ perfectly revealed the love of the love of God is seen the steadfast love of God is seen in Jesus Christ and second in Christ we receive the eternal mercies of the Lord the apostle Peter first Peter 1 3 we read he writes blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead wow It's because of God's great mercy that we can be born again, made new in Jesus Christ. And notice, we're born again to a living hope. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For in the resurrection, we see that Jesus not only died for our sins, but was raised again, conquering sin and death. His resurrection means that those who are born again will be resurrected because of the mercy of God. You'll be resurrected. You'll have a new body. Suffering and death will be put away. And we'll live in God's presence for all eternity. So second, our eternal hope 
and eternal home really are found in the never-ending mercies of the Lord revealed through Jesus Christ. And third, in Christ we experience the great faithfulness of the Lord. Speaking of Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it's through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. As we walk through the Old Testament, as we've been walking through the Old Testament, we've seen a lot of, God's made a lot of promises, hasn't He? Specifically, we've stopped at and looked at the covenants, God's promises to His people. And we've also seen, I think each time we looked at a covenant, we've seen, we've looked at how Jesus fulfills those covenants. Even though uh, when the book of Lamentations was written, it didn't seem possible that God's covenants could ever be fulfilled. I mean, no, the Israel's gone. No northern kingdom, no southern kingdom. The people are off the land. Many are dead. They're slaves now in foreign lands. But we know that through Christ, we know Jesus fulfills, we've talked about this, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of promise, because through Him all the nations will be blessed. We know that Jesus fulfills the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law, because He kept the law. He became the perfect sacrifice for all of those who would believe in Him, all who who could not keep the law themselves. And Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant, the covenant of the kingdom, because He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords who reigns throughout all eternity. God keeps all His promises. His great faithfulness is revealed in Jesus Christ. And because we have seen God's great faithfulness in keeping His covenants, we can put our hope in Him to keep one more covenant, right? The new covenant. We talked about that two weeks ago. That those who put their trust in Jesus Christ will be made new. The law will be written on their hearts. That we will be welcomed into relationship with God. That each of us can have an individual, personal relationship with God. That we'll be saved from our sin and saved to eternal life in His kingdom. Our hope is in the great faithfulness of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. And finally, in Christ we experience the abundant provision of the Lord. Ever since the fall, when sin entered into our world Humanity has been in great need, right? Because of our sin nature that we inherited and because of our own personal sin, we have uh, no ability to save ourselves. We have a great need. But in Christ, God provides a Savior. Seeing Jesus, John the Baptist cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Christ, God provides us with this perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, one whose death who's suffering in our place, could take away the sin of the world. In 1 John 4.14, Apostle John makes it clear, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. God provided the world with exactly what we needed, a Savior. Our hope is in the abundant provision of the Lord that's revealed in Jesus Christ. So this morning, no matter what your circumstances, whether you're going through a time of severe suffering or not, whether your suffering is because of your own sin or not, know this. Know that God is in control. Know that He has not forsaken you. Know that because of His finished work, the finished work of Jesus Christ, if you will 
today repent and return to the Lord, you'll be welcomed into His loving, forgiving arms. And as we come to the communion table, we celebrate, we remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. As we remember uh, His broken body and His spilt blood, let us celebrate that in Christ Jesus, we can personally experience God's steadfast love, His unending mercies, His great faithfulness, His abundant provision. And allow that to give you hope in all of life's circumstances, including including your suffering. So as we come to the Lord's table, I want to just take a moment, a moment for silent prayer, for you to go before the Lord, asking the Lord to examine your hearts, asking Him to reveal any sin, any doubts, any skepticism, and then confessing and repenting of that sin. Receiving His steadfast love, His never-ceasing mercy, and thanking the Lord for His great faithfulness, providing us with Jesus Christ. This is the symbol of His provision for us today as we come to the Lord's table. Providing us with the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Providing us with this sure hope for our eternal future. So let's just take a minute, uh, bow our heads, and, and pray silently, thanking the Lord.